Hello, babies. How are you? I'm all right, me. Um, you know, I am still actually buzzing from my Italy trip. I went to Sorrento, which is like an hour outside of Naples. It's beautiful. It's um it's just so amazing. And like everyone, their whole thing is uh, lemons. They're very well known for their lemons and oranges and, you know, like their citrus. So everywhere is like yellow. It's like pops of yellow and pops of orange. And it's just like, it feels like biting into a bit of citrus, <laughs> just being there. Um, and I love citrus. I love to smell like citrus. I love citrus candles. I love citrus perfumes. So I felt very good about being there. And also it was just nice. And everyone where uh, my friend came with me and everywhere we went the food was so good it was just like you know of course obviously even just the pizza you sit down you bite a pizza and you're just like mm. you know you're like you're like grunting over your food I, I miss it and I want to go back uh, and I'm already trying to figure out my next international trip if the world is still standing um, but I'm also just trying to figure out my life again <laughs> I feel like I'm always trying to figure out my life um, in a in a general sense I don't know if you can tell dear listener but um, I am over New York I am a little tired of New York and Brooklyn and I would like to leave uh, there's nothing wrong with Brooklyn Brooklyn is fantastic I do love Brooklyn I do love all the options that are out there the few times that I do feel spontaneous and I'm like, hey, you want to go get a drink? We could just go. And, you know, there's not too much to it. Um, but I am just, I'm ready to leave. Um, and I also want to put down some actual roots and live someplace and not just go someplace for a few years until I'm ready to move on to the next thing, you know? So my top two choices for where I want to live, in America at least, right now. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm mostly sure. Um, but that's Los Angeles and New Orleans. I've lived in both places for a significant amount of time each time that I lived um, in those cities. And I enjoyed them. I want to go back. I have really fond memories for the most part. Los Angeles kind of made me almost lose my mind, but that really wasn't Los Angeles's fault. Not like Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio. I was there for a year and I will never, ever, ever go back. Like, y'all got to pay me a lot of money to get me back in fucking Ohio. I'll just say that. Anyway, so the top two choices, again, Los Angeles and New Orleans. And my third choice is somewhere in North Carolina. I guess like the one of the major places, Raleigh-Durham or something like that. Uh, I've never lived in North Carolina. That's why I don't really know where I want to land there. <laughs> but I do feel like it's calling me and I want to go someplace warm and vibrant. And if I wasn't going to be in Los Angeles, then I definitely want to be in the South. So there's that. But I don't know. I just know that New York is not my home. You know, it's a great place, but I need a little bit more room than what I have here in New York. And I feel like that's very American of me, right? Like wanting more room than I actually need. But for a long time, I tried my best not to take up space, not to take up a lot of space, you know? You know, like, let me just sit in the corner, read my book. Please don't notice me. Please don't talk to me. And it wasn't just like my own attempt at keeping my peace, but it was also just like, I didn't really feel like performing whatever 
all these different people wanted me to be at any moment of the day. But now I want to spread my wings, so to speak, and take up as much space as I can. And I realized that when I was holding myself small in this really tight little ball, you know, trying to hide away from everybody, that it actually attracted more people than I wanted, uh, especially people who kind of had bad energy, let's say, <laughs> um, because they were so like focused on trying to get a close-up view on this person who has separated herself from everyone else, right? And like, they just wanted to know like, what's wrong with you? Or why are you over here? That kind of thing. But when I stretch out, I can still be admired, <laughs> but with like the safety of distance. And I really, I fuck with that. And I guess that's, you know, as much as birds kind of annoy me, I am a bit envious of their ability to kind of like, oh, look, I'm here on this branch. Aren't I pretty? Fuck you. I'm taking off now. Let me shit on your head. I really I, I admire that part of, of birds. But that's about it. You know, they can take off when they get tired of us. My guest today is Grace Bonnie, the founder of Design Sponge and Good Company and who is an avid bird watcher. I'm going to put my annoyance with birds aside and ask Grace, what's so wonderful about following these little creatures of land and air? So I'm Grace Bonney, and up until a few years ago, I ran a design website called Design Sponge. Uh, which I closed in 2019, right before the pandemic. And now I am in graduate school studying to be a uh, family therapist. So that that is what I'm up to these days. I like that move from design into family therapy. That's a big leap, but maybe not so much because I feel like people, you know, use their homes to represent a lot of things in their lives, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, all the, I think over the past like eight years in particular, I wrote a couple books that were primarily like really personal interviews with people. And those interviews became like very therapeutic in nature. And I realized I just really enjoyed those one-on-one -on -one conversations. So I think that kind of put the bug in my brain, so to speak. And yeah, it's, it's actually been like a a pretty interestingly seamless transition. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so today we are going to talk about bird watching. <laughs> I am pumping my hands in the air. I am very excited. Uh, so here's the thing. I do not like birds. So. <laughs> okay. How long do I have to convert? <laughs> uh, but, but also, you know, it's like, it's not a matter of like you convincing me. This is just about you talking about a passion and letting me know, letting me see it through your eyes. So uh, first of all, how long have you been bird watching? Only since 2020. Like everybody else, I, during the pandemic, discovered, you know, whatever was closest to the house because we were inside <laughs> and got a couple like acrylic bird feeders that attached to windows and it opened up a whole world and it's become like my favorite part of every day. Oh, interesting. When you're looking at bird feeders, like are you looking to attract specific types of birds or like, and what do you put in a bird feeder? Oh, so many things. <laughs> um, and when it started, it, I had no idea. I just, I knew that we lived in an area where there were lots of different birds, but I didn't know what they were. And I think a part of me is like a research geek by nature. So getting to see them that close up, like up against the window was just such a great way to like get a bird book out identify things, get to know about them. And then I realized that Cornell offered 
like casual courses online at this thing they run called the Bird Academy. And I took all of them in the course of like a year and learned everything I could about everything from little backyard birds to, you know, eagles and hawks and things like that. And then I, I started volunteering at a bird rescue, like a rehab center for injured wild birds. And it's just kind of been going since then. So, you know, I have my like really casual mix of birds in the backyard that eat every kind of like seed mix you can think of. And then now I've gotten way too comfortable, like taking a bucket full of dead rats and giving them to owls. <laughs> You know, this is it's been a very interesting life transition. <laughs> okay, so do you have repeat customers? Like do you I mean and have you started naming them? Do you know, like are you sure that they know you? Like how does how do you develop a relationship with birds, wild birds? You know, the nice thing is like you kind of don't, which is what I love about nature is like I love that I can go into nature anywhere, any type. And I don't matter anymore. Like I'm intruding on something else that has nothing to do with me. And it takes me out of my own head in a way that I really need help with. And it's just nice to be like, oh, maybe they notice me. I thought for a while that they would like, no, I was the person bringing them food. And there are all these TikTok feeds full of people who have birds landing on their hands. And I'm not I'm not that Snow White. It's not <laughs> happening. So I've just accepted that like if they allow me anywhere near them, like that that's a gift. And the birds that we have at the sanctuary and at the rehab are usually injured. So you really need to like keep your distance from them. And the goal is to keep them uh, like terrified of you so that they can go back into the wild and be safe. So I really learned to admire from afar, which is a new thing for me, like to not want to just crush it with love like I do with like every new passion, but to like understand that give and take of like, this is a wild thing. It needs to stay wild, but you can watch it from afar. And that's, that's a really nice thing. I so relate to that. <laughs> it's like, even though I am not a bird person at all beyond, you know, what I can eat, I really relate to the idea of like, I don't want to call myself a wild thing, but I'm, I'm going to take, you know, your your analogy there. Like, I feel like I am this wild thing that needs a lot of space, but I still want to be admired and I still want to respect the people who are admiring me. And I also, you know, like there is a give and take relationship here, but we need to maintain our distance from each other. And that's, uh, you know, I always said I was a cat, but maybe I am a cat and a bird. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, as a Gemini, I just identify with everything you just said so flawlessly, like, yes, to all those comparisons. And I've always called myself a cat. And then I realized, like, oh, no, I think I'm like a very small, angry bird. And they all like, they're like two sides of the same coin. But I love that. Like, I'm an only child. I'm a pretty solitary person. And so I think there's something about birds in particular, where it's like, they're not cuddly. They don't look human. They don't have like, the exception of a few, they don't really have like big round eyes or anything. So you don't connect to them in quite the same way. There's this feeling of awe of like, holy crap, this huge scary thing with talons is like sharing a space with me for a brief second. And I don't know, it's just like, it's a bit of awe and wonder. And it just feels like this like brief glimpse of something bigger than you that is just so important to feel when the entire world just feels like it's falling apart right now. Yeah, I love that. That um, I start off saying you're not going to convince me, but maybe... <laughs> Maybe because I have seen some of my other friends start to get into bird watching, you know, and they're posting things on Instagram and stuff like that. So you started this at the start of the pandemic. And now why do you keep going? I mean, we're still in the pandemic, but <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. Yes, not everybody feels that way. Thank you. Yes, uh, it's true. But why do you keep going? Why? Why do you hold on to this hobby? I think it's continued to open up things to the, about the world to me and about myself in ways that like 
I didn't know that I needed. Like I knew I needed to be around non-social media and non-computer screens for a while. And I was like, that's what I'm getting out of this. This is great. But I've made really amazing new friends through this who also like to bird. And I have learned, most importantly, to like trust my own intuition in a way that I really lost touch with over the years. Um, like I closing a business and trying to navigate life at like 40 and like start a new chapter can just be a bit overwhelming sometimes, despite the fact that I have like a ton of privilege and it just felt like a lot. And then something about being with these birds and like learning to trust your gut about like something seems off. I, I watch them close enough that I can tell when something is just like not quite the way it should be. And finding out that those intuitions can be right sometimes about something so wild and so unrelated to me, it's like a really interesting sense of pride that I don't think I've felt in my life before. And so every layer that kind of unfolds and the more I learn, I like reconnect to this very young part of myself too, of like just being curious about things and wanting to like poke and get into them and research them. And, you know, I think at the age I'm at now, and I'll be 41 this summer, like to reconnect with a very, very young, curious part of me has been a much needed feeling. Yeah. And it's relatively harmless because you have learned how to be in their world without causing them harm uh, to their environment, but you are still satisfying a curiosity that won't necessarily, you know, leave a trace behind and like cause any damage. That's the best way to phrase it. I've I've had a hard time in my life navigating community and like desperately wanting to be in community with other people, but sometimes struggling to feel like I really fit in anywhere. And then I watch birds and I watch all these different communities of birds who sometimes they hate each other. Sometimes they're constantly at battle. Sometimes they're just, they have symbiotic purposes, but never actually interact. But they're all part of a community of like our backyard and they all serve a purpose. And it makes me feel a little bit better about like, okay, I don't need to find like one best friend or one group of people who know me better than anything else. Like I'm serving a purpose and I'm part of a community of people who are all really different and we can care about each other, interact with each other and support each other. But it's okay to be a little bit different and and maybe not fit in entirely. And watching all those different systems interact is just, it's fascinating. And again, it just takes you out of your own head. And especially being in school for therapy, it's just like nonstop trauma digging. Mm, <laughs> and so it's mm -hmm. like having a thing to just take you out of that is, it's so awesome. And it's also just incredibly accessible. Like you don't even need binoculars to bird. Like just stand outside in your backyard, go for a walk in your neighborhood, like whatever you have access to, there is a bird there. People always like don't like pigeons. They think, think of them as like dirty city birds, but they're fascinating and they have really funny moves and really cool behaviors. And even if you just sit on a stoop and like watch pigeons for a while, like you'll find something cool and funny. And I appreciate any activity that does not require you to have gear or any sort of physical ability to like do something. You could just sit where you are and watch and still enjoy it. That was actually one of my questions, like what kind of equipment do you need? Because you've talked about community and and being a part of something, but there definitely are obstacles to being a part of something like bird watching. Because I know that there are still people who are, you know, trying to put up boundaries between who is allowed to be in nature. And it's just like, you know, black people can go out bird watching. Like it's okay, <laughs> you know, um, because there are some times when people uh, there were a lot of different reports in the last couple of years about like surfing communities on the West Coast of trying to keep black people and other people of color from surfing and it's like it's the fucking ocean it doesn't mm -hmm. belong to you how dare you try to say who can be in the water and there's also that within the birding communities where it seems that 
bird watching is it is a very privileged thing, right? Because who has the leisure time to go out at six in the morning when this particular bird is chirping and making its mating call or, you know, that kind of thing. So can you talk about, um, I went all over the place, I'm sorry, but I'll bring it back. But can you talk about like the types of groups and the diversity that you have encountered or not encountered? And what do you need in order to be a bird watcher? Yes. I've just been nodding my head ridiculously the whole time you're talking. Um, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Yes. I mean, whiteness has a way of rotting everything and and gatekeeping something that does not require a single thing. Like you do not need anything to bird, period. You do not have to bird at 6 a.m. You don't have to do any of those things. Like there's birds out every single time of the day, including the middle of the night. Some of the coolest things are out in the middle of the night. So if you have time even just walking like to the bus in the morning, you can see a bird and that counts as birding. And there will always be gatekeepers who say that things have to be a certain way. And a lot of that is just, you know, cloaked in anti-blackness. It's cloaked in ableism. I mean, the locations that people try to pick for birding are incredibly inaccessible usually because they involve some sort of hiking or traveling or paying for parking or all these different things that just they don't need to be that hard. And so there have been a lot of groups that have popped up to try to counteract that and create birding clubs for people of color, for people with disabilities, queer people, trans people, all of this just to try to create safer spaces to bird together. Those spaces are still fraught with the same inequities that you see in any community, but I think they're being addressed more head on, like including even at a very basic level, the Audubon Society, way fucking overdue, (laughs) did a whole article on just the racism of Audubon and how inherently racist the naming of birds can be. I've been following a lot of people. There's a hashtag on Instagram um, called Black Birders Week that happens now every spring. That's a really incredible celebration of birders, naturalists, um, just anybody working in some sort of biology field, herpers, which are the people who go out looking for um, snakes and lizards and things like that just to celebrate black scientists and photographers. And it's a really great way to just kind of reconnect with people so that the community is not entirely defined by older white men, as so many communities are. So I think it's something that you have to look for, but it is easier to find online than it is in person. Like I don't connect with any mainstream birding stuff online or in person. For the most part, I'm looking for small local groups or I just go by myself most of the time. But I think racism is a huge part of birding, including this is so wild and and not surprising, but just constantly disappointing. There's even like racism against black birds. Like it's a literal thing. Yes. Um, And there was a great conversation about that during Black Birders Week in 2021, where they just talked about how everybody hates vultures and crows and ravens and thinks they're scary and bad and awful and aggressive. And the parallels between that and what white people say about black people is obvious. So I think there's a lot of discourse happening. I don't see a lot of big changing happening, but I do see it happening in smaller local levels. And I think Instagram in particular has made it easier to connect with and follow Black birders and learn from people who I think are coming from a much better perspective than a lot of the kind of more academic bird communities online. This is so niche. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of my really good friends loves animals, loves birds, and she is always talking about how People discriminate against pigeons, but they're just doves that are yes. black. <laughs> they're, they're rock doves. Yes. Yeah. Everyone hates vultures. I mean, the, the shit that crows get online, crows are some of the smartest, most amazing. Talk about community. I mean, they are the most communal, communally supportive, dedicated, lifelong like supporters of their pack ever. And they constantly just get a bad rap as just being like ugly, bad, dirty, killing birds. And I'm like, there are so many other 
quote unquote fuzzy cuter things that kill way more things than crows do. And suspiciously, everyone just hates the blackbirds. So it's wild to see how deep racism is in even the nichest, geekiest community. Yeah. And even um, crows and ravens, you know, they hold significant weight in different cultures um, mm-hmm. and, and different folklore for communities of color. So it's really interesting that these particular birds are also the ones that are demonized are the ones that we are told are super scary when actually they have Mm -hmm. a you know high significance in a lot of uh, different cultures so i you talked about you don't often meet in groups you usually go by yourself but when you're in a group how do you find birds without disturbing them or making them afraid like do you have to be very quiet is it like just being like at a tennis match or something you know or you're just like super quiet until they till they show up like i for the most part my friend rachel and i go birding couple times a month and we'll pick spots around us in the Hudson Valley and we'll we'll talk at a normal volume and we're aware of if we see something to kind of lower our volume. But for the most part, if you're going into wild areas, they're going to leave before you even realize they're there. Um, And so it's rare for us to see something that hasn't already seen us, but has accepted that like we are at a safe distance from it. You know, rule number one is to never use like the apps to make a bird call to try to attract something because it can upset them or confuse them or cause some sort of like stress reaction. I don't play music or anything like that. But I think just, you know, be a pretty normal human being out in the world talking at a normal level and it'll be fine. And Never try to touch anything, catch anything. For the most part, I I have a pair of binoculars I just bought online and I've had the same pair for the last two years and I just go out and we watch. And if there are other people who are doing the same thing, we'll ask them questions. And for the most part, I find other birders to be pretty friendly and sharing information. Um, I do find when people have like a telephoto lens, it's like a whole different breed of birder that I'm just not in that that game yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I'm experiencing this as a white, like very straight cis presenting person. And so I think I am probably afforded a lot of luxuries of communication with other birders that I'm not sure everybody else would get. So my experience is very much shaped by my identity and my experiences have mostly been pretty positive. But I've, you know, I've listened to everybody who communicates during Black Birders Week. And I don't think that's a universal experience with the birding community. Mm -hmm. So I think it's something that there are groups like the Feminist Birding Club, which has started in New York um, to try to counteract that. But, you know, there's there are issues within all those groups as well. So I think it's something that's just like continuing to shift and grow as there's a, a larger eye on birding right now, especially during the pandemic. There's a lot of change that needs to happen. But in general, I walk, stay quiet, and kind of keep to myself. Hmm. And is there is there scorekeeping? Like, do you get like a little <laughs> a little scorecard and like you're supposed to look, well, here's this very rare bird that only comes out, you know, at this time of day and I saw it and then you get like 10 points with it or something? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, th- are you encouraged to keep track of what you see? You know, Cornell every year does the great backyard bird watch, which just encourages people to go out into their backyard, whatever that means to you, whether it's like your front walkway in your neighborhood, and just count what you see. And that's just to keep a general idea of like how populations are doing, but it's not like a competition. It's just a support bird communities kind of activity. Um, There are definitely people who get incredibly competitive and who travel for things and, you know, fly to different countries to go try to catch things. And that's amazing. But that's a certain level of privilege of birding that I just haven't been super interested in yet because I just think there's so much interesting stuff to happen wherever you live in your backyard and appreciation to happen. So that's not so much my jam, although my friend Rachel and I did drive to Maine 
which we could do pretty easily in our car from New York, um, to try to see the sea eagle that was in Maine for a little bit, but we missed it by a couple of weeks and it turned up in Nova Scotia. But that's the most intense traveling I've ever done was just a quick overnight drive to Maine to see if we might spot this very rare eagle. Hmm. And what is the most interesting bird you've seen so far? We were in New Paltz, Rachel and I, and we saw a leucistic red-tailed hawk, which is a totally, essentially, albino um, hawk. And it was completely white. It looked like a giant seagull. Every birder will hate me for the fact that I just said seagull. A seagull is not a real thing. It's a gull. Sorry. But um, <laughs> it's it's an all-white, very large bird of prey. And they're very rare. There's like 360 in the whole country. And we just spotted one. And I have a very, like, embarrassing video of me being like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, are you videotaping this? And it's, like, just a very shaky camera <laughs> video. But um, that was the coolest thing I think I've seen so far. Do you have a holy grail bird that you are looking out for? Oh, yeah. The falconet. It is a miniature falcon. I love a mini bird of prey. I just think they're painfully cute. <laughs> Um, I think I like really identify with like being a tiny kind of angry bird. And so they, they are from Mexico, but they've been spotted in Texas. So in my head, I'm like, if there's a way for me to get to Texas sometime, I would love to try to see if I can spot them. Um, but my, that used to be the kestrel for me, which is another miniature falcon. And now we have a few of them at the uh, bird rehab where I volunteer now. And they're still just as amazing to me. But I love a tiny mean bird. They're fun. <laughs> I actually started following this account on Instagram called Hawk on Hand. And it is <gasps> this guy in Los Angeles who who trains hawks and mm-hmm. you, know, you know birds and things like that. And like yeah. he recently had some images where he had been called out, I guess, to the beach or something like that, because some company was doing filming and they were using drones. And so he had the hawk there to distract the seagulls. And the hawk was not harming it or anything like that. The hawk was just there, but the seagulls were circling it and away from the drones. And I thought, this is such a really cool way for us as humans to interact with nature, do our jobs, you know, do our creative jobs as filmmakers, artists, whatever, but also still respect the fact that we don't want any harm to come to the seagulls. So here is this hawk. I think that's fascinating. It is wild. I will say falconers are are quite controversial in the birding community. Mm. Like the idea of keeping a wild animal and like having it be like a working animal Mm -hmm. is something that's like very controversial. I didn't know that until recently. Like I, for my 40th birthday, I went on a hawk walk, which is like we went to a falconer and we got to meet all the birds they keep. I thought it was amazing, but I understand why people have questions about whether or not it's ethical to keep birds that like are inherently wild in small cages. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, I mean, you know, all the birds that were in you know, every movie, every TV show you can think of, those are all falconer birds that are trained. And for the most part, if they're kept by a really good falconer, they have a beautiful enclosure, they have free flying time, they're fed incredibly well, which and they will live much longer than they would have ever lived in the wild. Um, so, you know, it's falconing is like a super interesting topic. But it's it's interesting to see like, that birds have jobs like in the entertainment industry, but they do. <laughs> yeah. And I and this guy also one time used, I think it was a hawk or maybe an owl because he also has like owls that he trains or something. But he was called in because there was a nest in like a 
building and they wanted a safe way of getting the birds out, but they weren't really sure like where it was. And so he brought in one of his birds that found the nest and he was able to like then retrieve it. So it was really interesting. Yeah. That's super cool. I mean, that's one of the things I love about birds is like their ability to adapt. Like, I mean, many species are dying off, which is terrible, but like the bird that we wanted to see that was in Maine is a bird that's originally from Russia and China and like, you know, the the Arctic Circle. And because those climates are warming, it was like, I'm going to try flying now to, you know, what we know was the United States. And it's looking for other places to live and it's heading back north again to look for colder weather. And I just think it's incredible how far birds will travel to find a better climate to keep living in. And I love that in big cities, Peregrine falcons and hawks have now adapted skyscraper ledges and, Mm -hmm. you know, even like in New York City, people's fire escapes have become hawk nests. They find a way to make it work. And I know I think there'll be this whole new era of birds living in urban areas that are thriving and adapting. And it's I just I find there to be a life lesson in like everything related to birds. Yeah, for sure. Um, So that leads me to my next question, which is. How does birding translate into other parts of your life? I closed my business in 2019, and I assumed I would take like six months off and then go start something else, and that didn't happen, and then the pandemic happened, and I was stuck inside just being like, what am I doing with my life? Who am I without this job and this identity? And it took me a while to kind of unravel how attached to my work identity I had become, and I frankly just like didn't know who I was anymore. And I, I really kind of reevaluated everything <laughs> in my life, like from top to bottom. And in this process of watching birds, I remember that like as a kid, this was very much how I was. Like I was super curious about stuff. I've always wanted to like research and know more and learn. And getting into the world of birding is just an endless source of that because it's just there's always something else to learn and to research. And that to me is really exciting. So I think it's just really taught me to like trust the parts of me that feel like they've been there for a long time and to re-embrace them and to not be embarrassed by them. Because let's face it, birding's pretty dorky in a lot of ways. You know, we've got our big hats and the old pocket pants and, you know, giant lenses and stuff. But talk about just unabashed joy about seeing a random thing fly by once. Like, But to have people to share that with, it's really teaching me about like the types of friends I want to have, like the things I want to be able to share with people. And it's also taught me to, I think, better appreciate the people in my life who have these interests that I don't share, but who are really passionate about. I think I used to just be like a little judgy about that. And now I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, this is your birding. Got it. Okay, I have a thing to compare it to because I didn't have any hobbies while I had my business. There was no time for that. So now that I have like an actual hobby, I'm like, oh, this is what it's about. I get it now. (laughs) Like this is pretty great to have a thing where you can just really love something and not be afraid to look uncool doing it. Yes. Yes to all of that. This is part of why I wanted to start this podcast was because I also realized that all the hobbies that I had, I had monetized. I'm a freelance writer. So everything that I love to do, all of my hobbies, I had tried to turn into pitches, right? And I started this at the beginning of the pandemic as well, just realizing I needed something that was just for me, the pleasure of it just for me. And so I had to like, I too went back to something that I used to do in my childhood, which was cross-stitching with my mom. 
And I started that. And then I was like, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only person who is like, I have to get back in touch with the hobbies, the things that can take me away from everything going on in the world. So I completely relate to everything you just said and how it's just so freeing. And also it lightens you up a little bit. You know, Um, we've been doing the podcast now for over a year. And even though, you know, I tease about not liking birds, but that idea of Talking to people about their passions is so important to me because it makes me feel good. Like, just tell me what you love. And then I can just like get the glow from the people as they're as they're talking about. And that really replenishes me. So I love when people are on and we talk about the things that I may not be interested in, but they're so important to you. And then I'm just like basking in the glow coming off of you. So I love that. (laughs) I love it. And thank you for making a show where that is what you're focusing on. I think that that thing you were talking about of like, side hustle culture of like, oh, if you like this thing, how do you turn it into content? How do you make money off of it? I don't begrudge anybody for making those decisions. Like we live in a gross capitalist society where you have to make money off of everything. But it's nice to see people trying to find time to find a little something that isn't monetized. And I recognize that's not possible for everybody. But I wish it was because I think that our lives would be, I don't know, I think they would feel just a little bit more present if we all had a thing to do that wasn't connected to like, how does this make me money in some way? And it took me like at least a year to like soften that muscle I had developed that turns everything into content. And now I'm free of that muscle, which is pretty nice. But it, it took a while because that culture just tells us to do that. That's what the internet does these days. So yeah. you're, you're in company with a lot of other people <laughs> who are just like trying to figure out how to do things and, you know, enjoy them without making money off of them. Yeah. Um, so what would you say to someone who is interested in getting started with birding, but they have no idea where to start? I would say just start in your backyard, Uh, whatever that is for you. Just go outside. If you're able to sit outside around like 6 a.m., even 7 a.m., you can hit this thing called dawn song. It's when every bird, usually in the spring, just kind of sings way more than it would ever sing during the rest of the day. You can just sit and listen. And it's a beautiful way to just kind of pay attention to the sounds around you. I'm a horrible meditator, and I found that like the best thing I can find that's even close to that is listening to bird songs because it just kind of grounds me in the here and now. So I would say start with that. And there are night versions of that. If you are somebody who works a day shift and your off time is at night, like you can listen for owl sounds, you can see bats. There's all sorts of cool stuff that happens at night too. And just pay attention to their behavior if you see them because you know, like I remember when I learned that birds take their back leg and they itch their ears like a dog. That <laughs> that gave me joy for like a solid week where I just thought like birds are like dogs. They itch their ears. This is hilarious. And I just think people just see the flying part. But there's a whole world of just funny little quirky behaviors and personalities, little like chances for joy. And I think we could all use that. Absolutely. I sometimes put on bird videos on YouTube for my cat. And then I realized that I was actually being very productive in my own writing and everything because it was so soothing to me. So sometimes even when I don't really need to soothe my cat for any reason or calm her down, I just put on one of her cat videos with birds. (laughs) And I'm just like, yes, this is what we're going to write to today. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's got their own thing. But I, I really do like get a lot of just happy out of listening to them. And there's a really great app that Cornell has called the Merlin Bird ID, M-E-R-L-I-N, and it's free. You can record sounds anywhere you are, and it'll tell you what birds you're listening to. 
And that can be a cool way to discover, you know, whether you have a chickadee in your backyard or a cardinal or something. And maybe it's just that one bird where you're like, okay, I'm going to Google what's up with a cardinal. That's what it was for me. It was like one interesting thing that I didn't know. And then there were two and then there were three. And now I have an Excel list with photographs and dates and notes. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on this show. Where can listeners find you online uh, if they wanted more info? First, thank you for having me. This was so, so fun. And uh, I'm just at my old uh, Design Sponge account, which is just the words design and sponge all in one. And I'm actually rehabbing baby squirrels in our guest room right now. And you can follow that journey. taking animals most people can't stand and trying to help them after they've fallen out of a tree. Oh, poor things. Thank you so much. And now it's time for the show's indulgence. That's where I recommend something you can enjoy without worry of judgment because, just in case you forgot... There is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Today, I'm going to recommend taking a cooking class. It doesn't matter if you burn water or if your mashed potatoes have earned a Michelin star. Take a cooking class. When I was in Italy, yes, get used to me saying that because it's just going to be part of my, like, dialogue for the next two months, I think. But when I was in Italy, I took a class where we made eggplant ravioli, rabbit cacciatore, a bunch of breads and pizza things, and then some chocolate lava cake. It was my first time making pasta. I've always been afraid to try to make my own pasta. I I was really very intimidated by the process. I'm not good at baking. I'm very impatient. And it's such an important cultural food I did not want to mess it up. There's a lot of pressure that's there. But when I went to this class and let an expert guide me, it was so fun. It was informative and it was delicious. And I got to be a part of this whole process. I got out of my own way. I put aside all the reasons I kept telling myself that I'd fail at this thing. And I experienced the highlight of my trip. So take a cooking class. Instead of thinking of all the ways you're not suited to it, take a chance on yourself and create a highlight of your life. This has been your indulgence. You have been absolved. This is Good For You. It's hosted by me, Nicole Perkins, and produced by Multitude. Our lead producer is Eric Silver. Our editor is Misha Stanton. And our executive producers are Amanda McLaughlin and me. Our theme was created by Don Will, and our art is by Jessica E. Boyd. You can follow the show at This Is Good Pod, and you can follow me at Tennessee Whiskey Woman. That's T-N, whiskey with an E, woman. And a huge, huge thank you to everyone who supports the show on Patreon, especially to our supporting producer-level patrons, Chelsea, Conchetta, Courtney, Elizabeth, and Mira. To get exclusive rewards like stickers, monthly playlists curated by me, and even custom drabbles written just for you, join us for as little as $5 a month at patreon.com slash thisisgoodpod. This was good for me. Was it good for you?